But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 222. You know, that was my grandparents' house number. Oh, I did not it's know that. It's a very special number. Oh, well, I learn something new every day. <laughs> it's been a minute since we last spoke. It was the end of the Australian Open, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Sure, but if you've been attending our Twitch sessions, it's been less than the two right. weeks sure. since the last episode. And thank you to all those who did show up for the last one where we played Name the Tennis Player. And that took like a half hour max. And somehow, somehow we stayed on for like two and a half hours. I have no idea what we talked about. You're, I'm afraid, you're very loquacious that yeah, I'm always afraid of what will come out of my mouth when we are a little bit more free in a live setting. Mm. <laughs> so to reel that in a little bit, Let's talk about all the tennis that's been going on the last couple of weeks, of which there's been a lot of tennis. Yep. You know, February, March is always scattered across the globe in tennis. And we are, we're not back to normal, but I would say this is a more aggressive tennis calendar than we've seen in about a year. We're going to start with what's been happening this week and then work our way back to the results from last week. First up, we'll deal with Doha, where Petra Kvitova in a rematch of the 2018 final, beats Garbine Muguruza. Yeah, the, the WTA 500 tournaments are coming fast and furious now. There are so many opportunities for points. Muguruza came in as one of the hottest players on tour. She hasn't won a tournament in a minute, but she reached the final of the one of the warm-ups right before the Australian Open. She lost in a very, very tight match, had match points over Naomi Osaka, at the Australian Open, and now she's here again in the final. And seems to be the in-form player, but it's kind of that last hump that's been troubling her a bit. Yeah, she hasn't won a tournament, but over the last extended bit, even before the the quarantine hiatus, she's been one of the most consistent players on the WTA Tour. Yeah, she said she's happy with this progress. She doesn't expect it all to come at once, but she's got quality wins over Sofia Kennan, Vondrosova, Sabalenka, Sakari. In this final against Petra, Petra was just, I mean, she was just so on. And it wasn't even that she was totally overwhelming and hitting, you know, dozens and dozens of winners. She was defending well. She was steady. She was keeping it clean. She wasn't making too many errors. And it just felt, after the first few games, which were very tight, it felt like there's nothing you can do to stop Petra right now. Well, we know Petra's history of three-set matches, so <laughs> there's no point in any match that Petra Kvitova plays where you feel it's a done deal. Right. But Muguruza, like, continued to miss those opportunities, right? Continued to miss fairly easy shots later in the match, and it became, I mean, the lead became overwhelming. For Muguruza, one of the troubles for her right now seems to be closing in certain spots mm. she had those match points against Naomi Osaka in Australia she's been getting to finals getting to semifinals she's also had a lot of bad luck with draws this coming week in Dubai will be the third straight tournament this year where she's had a tough go of it 
as far as the draw is concerned. And that's a function of her ranking, right? Right. She's ranked number 16. So your second, third, fourth round matches in this super deep WTA landscape, they're going to be tough. She had Naomi Osaka in the fourth round in Australia. She had Sabalenka last week in the second round. And then this week coming up, she's going to have Iga Swiatek potentially in the fourth round. Because the ranking system is so different, uh, because points aren't falling off like they normally do, it's really tough for Garbinia to make up that points differential. Mm-hmm. She's playing so much better than a 15, 16th ranked player, obviously. Had she won this tournament, she'd have only gained one spot in the rankings, mm-hmm. up to number 15, to flip with Iga Swiatek, who she could potentially play this week. Even before the hiatus, you mentioned that the rankings freeze had something to do with how stacked maybe the 1 through 20 are in the rankings. Even before then, there was a a lot of density in the rankings, and it's just been uh, exacerbated, I guess. Mm. We will talk later on when we deal with the, the measures that the ATP have introduced going forward through to Cincinnati, whether or not we feel like these measures have been fair. But this tournament in Doha was a little bit strange because by the by day three, you start to realize that every single match has been won in straight sets. Mm-hmm, which the, was surprising. There were a lot of good matchups. We talk about the depth on the WTA, but it didn't it didn't translate in the first few days. And it wasn't until night the night session of day three where we finally got our first three set match, and that was Muguruza Sabalenka, followed by another three set match right afterward with Anjabur and Karolina Pliskova. You notice that Muguruza is very often a factor in these highly anticipated matches. When people go through a draw and they see some of the possible third or fourth rounds, Garbinia is very often, you know, one of those people you look to. But let's talk about Petra. 28? 28 titles? Yeah, Like, that, I, I lost track of her title count. Um, she hadn't won one since Stuttgart in 2019. It's, so that's that's almost a full two years ago. Mm, we don't talk often enough about Petra's longevity toward the top of the game. This title count puts her, you know, among obviously the best of her generation. But the way that she's able to sort of flick it on in finals is incredible. She also plays well at tournaments where she has a good history too. Mm-hmm. And Doha is one of those tournaments. She's won it before in 2018. She was a beaten finalist last year. And in 2018, she beat Muguruza in the final. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in 2018, Muguruza had been issued a walkover in the semifinal to get to the final to play Kvitova, and the exact same thing happened this time around when Azarenka had to pull out because of a back injury ahead of her semifinal. And she loses again to Kvitova yeah. in the final. There's something about this matchup. Petra leads now 5-1 and one against Garbinje. Petra uh, being the better defender on court, is interesting. It sure bodes well for <laughs> for the next few years of her career. Doha wrapped up on Saturday so that those players could then move on to Dubai, mm-hmm. which is already underway. We just saw Coco Gauff snatch victory from the jaws of defeat where victory was already almost guaranteed <laughs> in her first round match against Alexandrova. Coco Gauff being up 5-1 in the third set down 3-5 in the deciding tiebreaker and then eventually winning 10-8. It was a wild, wild ride. But most of the other tournaments this week being Rotterdam, Buenos Aires, and Lyon, they finished up today on Sunday. 
We'll start where? Where do you want to start? Rotterdam? Yeah, so Rotterdam, the guys are there. Andre Rublev wins his fourth consecutive ATP 500 title. Played four in a row, won all of them. Three at the end of last year. Yeah. So that's Hamburg, St. Petersburg, Vienna, and Rotterdam. He's doing the, the Grand Tour of Europe. That's 20 matches in a row on the ATP 500 level that Rublev has won. Mm-hmm. This week, he took out Andy Murray in the second round. Let me tell you that first that first set, if you based, if you expected that first set to be replicated in, say, a set two and a set three, that match would have gone four hours. <laughs> That's how long and drawn out and hard slogged that first set was. Rublev eventually winning easily in the second set. And then he also beat Stefano Tsitsipas in the semifinals easily. So this is not a case of Rublev just running through any old random fields and random draws, not beating big enough names. Like, he's he's doing the business here. Oh, indeed. I don't think anyone doubts that at this point. Medvedev had a chance uh, early on to replace Nadal as the number two ranked player, and we'll talk about why that's important. Uh, he lost in straight sets to Dusan Lajovic. Uh, the ranking thing, the number two. This would be the first time since uh, July 2005 that a big four member was not ranked number two. Uh, and that was Leighton Hewitt back in the day. Now it's confirmed by the ATP that Medvedev will indeed get the number two ranking just a little bit later than people had hoped on March 15th. And really the only consideration here for the number two ranking is whether or not Nadal has to play Djokovic or vice versa in the semifinals at Roland Garros. Really. that That's the only <laughs> thing of importance... Yeah for anybody outside of Medvedev in this situation. It, I mean, it's a it's a huge symbolic thing, obviously, because the the run of dominance by the Big Four has, is just incredible. We're, you know, we're now at 15 years. Um, yeah, it's it's a hell of an achievement for Medvedev. I'm just saying as far as the, the repercussions and probably why a lot of folks are paying attention to this outside of the historic nature of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about how... In Rotterdam, they play in what looks like... I imagined... Do you remember the final episode of Queen's Gambit? Where she's playing in that yes. massive cavernous hall? Yes. And I, I just imagine seeing chess being played on the ceiling while the matches were going on. I loved what they did with that court. Mm. I'm all about accentuating with tones of green. <laughs> it's actually been a theme of me with you this yes, week. Yes, you're actually wearing army green right now. I've been watching shows and pointing out to you that, wow, look, everybody looks good wearing some kind of green or forest green. You should wear some more <laughs> green. And there there it pops up in Rotterdam. And they, they hid some of the seats with, I don't know what the word you'd use to call it, but they did some interior decorating mm-hmm. for, the, for the courts. And I, I dug it. The lighting was good. It was dramatic. It was, yes. Also at this tournament, Borna Church made the semifinals in what we decided was a Kodak kit. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys know the Kodak logo? So I'm from the world headquarters of Kodak, Rochester, New York. And that logo is everywhere. We have it all over the house. Who has it all over the house? We we do or you do? No, like, well, everybody growing up. But in our house, you know, we had Kodak blankets and bags and film in the fridge you still have kodak cups exactly he did look good in that kit though yes he did and he he had a really good tournament eventually losing to fucevic in the semifinals speaking of someone who had a great tournament marton fucevic reaches the final plays rublev in in two tight sets 
Marton was just playing some, I guess you would call it muscular but stylish tennis. Just very steady this week. I mean, that's how you describe his game, period. Yeah, yeah. Typically. A lot was happening at this tournament. Kei Nishikori is on the come up, finally winning back-to-back matches for the first time since U.S. Open 2019. Uh, he beat Felix, kind of a hobbled Felix this week, Alex Diemenauer. Kay said his coaching team uh, of Max Mirny and Michael Chang helped him work out a new service motion. So he was looking for a little more power, but he had to reduce stress on his shoulder. And this kind of happened after he dealt with that long elbow injury. Great for him to be having these results on the court, but he also scored some big wins off the court when (laughs) there was this video packet released where, I guess, kids in Rotterdam asked the players questions and they responded to it. One of them was, how old were you when you when you had your first kiss? And Felix is telling us that he was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and then this other question, the players are asked, when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? And you almost always get these same answers from these players. It happened when they were asked last year, who is a woman who inspires oh, you in your life. this again. And then everybody said, my mother, my mother, my mother, my mother, my mother. And like, when everybody's answering the same thing, it only has a remote chance of working if there's one person who says something different. And if that something different hits. Mm. And boy, did Kane Shikori hit. <laughs> because he sat there, after all the tennis players were told to us, he says, a penguin. He came for Dominic Team's wig wow. and said he wanted he always wanted to be a penguin. You may have adopted penguins, Dominic Team, in adulthood, but I am Sir Penguin from birth. <laughs> One of the other reasons why a lot of eyes were on Rotterdam this week was Andy Murray's return to tennis. He played one match in Montpellier the week prior and then showed up in Rotterdam. He he won his first match in three sets against Robin Hassa coming back pretty impressively. By the end of that second set, he, he started to finally show Andy Murray tennis and then looked really good in that third set. And then, of course, ran into Andrei Rublev in the next round. That's as tough an ask for anybody not named Djokovic Nadal at this level on the mm-hmm. ATP Tour. So that, that a 7-5, 6-2 scoreline is a pretty good showing for Andy Murray, especially given how competitive that first set was. Just a match of losing losing his way on serve toward the end of that set. After that match, he was quoted in press as saying, every time I lose a match, I'm getting told to retire, that I should stop playing, that I'm finished, that I've got nothing left. And it's sad and all of these things. But why? Why should I stop? I could still compete with the best players in the world with one hip. So I think that's quite amusing. My skill hasn't changed. You can ask the guys that I'm practicing with. Well... Can we have a list of players (laughs) that you've been practicing with? And you know what? Everybody is going to be told, every player over 30 is going to be told you should retire. But for someone like him who's invested so much time in getting this hip surgery and recovering from it, why not try? Why not be out here if you still want to do it? And also that's almost always wrapped up in your own feelings about this player and your own desire to remember them in a certain way. Right. It has nothing to do with whether they're still enjoying themselves or whether they want to put themselves through it. So really, folks need to get over themselves. Like those glory days, they're still on tape. 
Wimbledon is going to still sell those DVDs, right? You will be able to remember him like that. Big, big news this week. Another WTA breakout has happened. Right. It, there's just an- there's another name to add to the fold. And yes, this is not something we want to be hyperbolic about. This is not something that we want to add pressure to somebody unnecessarily. But at the same time, we have to note that Iga Shriantek didn't need much to get to the top. Mm. <laughs> you know, it did, we've seen a lot, Sophia Kennan, a lot of these young women, they don't need a long time to get that first big break, breakthrough. Right, right. And so now, and selfishly, I'm going to plug myself here because I picked her as a, a breakout candidate in 2021, Clara Towson has won her first WTA title just blitzing through the field, winning seven matches, two in qualifying, five in the main draw, beating, I believe, three former champions in Lyon, all in straight sets. Did I say that? No. <laughs> but And also, each set was won with losing no more than four games, except for one. Mm-hmm. A 7-5 set yeah. against Bedosa. She took out the top seed, Alexandrova, in the first round. Alexandrova has had it with teenagers lately, two weeks in a row. Alexandrova is an excellent indoor player. She has won more matches than anyone over the past, I think, year and a half or something. That was the first round. If you watch that match today against Coco Goff, you'll know what you were just talking about. She loses to Towson. Well, this is an overlap here. She loses her match to Towson last week in Lyon. This week in Lyon, because we're still Mm -hmm. Sunday here. And she plays her first round in Dubai on the same day that Towson is winning that tournament in Lyon. So she loses to the 18-year-old Towson and then the 16-year-old Coco Goff. You know, within the span of five or six days. days. <laughs> like you said, we don't like to feed the fire of, uh, you know, the, the PR machine of these young players coming up. But what Clara Towson has done uh, deserves a conversation, right? She's an 18-year-old. She's from Denmark, a country that has, I think, two women in the top 1,000. She's one of them. She's kind of built her career quickly, but steadily. She was the junior number one at one point. She won the 2019 Australian Open in juniors. And she's just been lighting up the ITF circuit. She has nine ITF titles, two this year, you know, over the past two months. One of them in Germany, and one of them in the UAE after she lost in Australian Open qualifying. To your point, Tamani Karyol tweeted, the Danish number two on the WTA is ranked number 1,017. So they only oh, have sorry, one. Oh, sorry, so they only have one. And on the ATP, there are only two Danes in the top 1,000. Denmark having one of the biggest young prospects on each tour, Clare Towson and Holger Rune, feels like a bit of a miracle just one year after Wojniacki's retirement. Clara Towson uh, has been working with Olivier Junom, who was previously on Justine Enna's coaching team back in the day. He works at the Justine Enna Academy, where she's been training for like the past year. And uh, Chris Odo from Tennis Now has a great story on Towson. I learned a lot, so I would recommend you check that out. Uh, but he talks about how Junom and Towson are working on kind of this, the slow and steady approach. I don't know if they expected her to win this title. That's not slow and steady, but, you know, working on her variety, because the power is there. The power mm-hmm. is natural, but she has so many other gifts. So they're trying to just work on that stuff, work on focus, and uh, 
being part of the now. You read anything about her, there there hasn't been a whole lot granted to this point, but what you do read about her, she seems incredibly level-headed. Her game is powerful. <laughs> so many balls today in the final were hit high to her backhand and she stepped into it, hitting it on the rise and blasted it down the line for winners. She's got incredible hand-eye coordination. The serve has a lot of pop. You could, I mean, I, I haven't seen enough of her to be able to tell you what are the things that she needs to work on. We know, and we've talked on the show recently, that it's not enough in tennis to just have power, that you need right, to have right. other tools in the bag. So, yes, that can power you to a win at a smaller tournament. To, to get to the, the real pinnacle of women's tennis where you're in the top five, where you're winning these tournaments regularly, where you make deep runs and slams, you're going to have to have more. Mm-hmm. So we'll see, she's still young. We'll see how she develops. But And it seems like her coach is hyper aware of what you were just talking mm. about. Uh, I mean, she beat Jenny Brady at the French Open just last year. Yeah, which I believe was her slam main draw debut. Mm-hmm. This after Brady had just made the U.S. Open semifinals. So this was Towson's third WTA main draw. On the ATP side, the Serundolo brothers, Juan Manuel especially, just won his first title in his first main draw appearance. I am so slow to catch on to trends on social media, always. Is this why I saw so many people typing and changing their names to Juanma? Yes. So Juan, what, Juan Manuel, okay. his nickname is Juanma. I finally have made the <laughs> connection here because you've written it out explicitly on this agenda. Yes, Juanma Stan account. I've seen a lot of those. Yeah. So <laughs> I just, I'm at the point in my life where I just accept that I don't know it. Yeah. You yeah. know, I feel like some things have passed me by. <laughs> I'm accepting the aging process slowly. Yeah. It's and like, so, oh, millennials are old now. Yeah. So like I'm not eager to be trying to find these things out or search things out anymore you know if it comes to me it comes to me and finally this came to me (laughs) so we're going to talk about juanma in a second but while we're on the results from this week his brother francisco who's 22 wins three qualifying matches at buenos aires beats coria and ramos vignolas not to mention benoit pair in what was an extremely shameful display on court from him We're going to have to talk about that. Yeah. Francisco reaches the final and meets Diego Schwartzman, who wins quite easily. This is Diego's first uh, home country tournament win. He's won in Turkey, in Brazil, in Mexico, but this is the first time he's won a tournament in his country of Argentina and in his hometown of Buenos Aires. What would have made this title historic if Francisco had won it would, it would have meant that it would be the first time in ATP history that brothers would have won in back-to-back weeks on tour. And I was also secretly hoping for it to happen as well so that we could crown new brother kings on the ATP tour. <laughs> because the Zver brothers oh. have just... Well... They've abdicated. Now... They've abdicated. Misha is all over TV. Uh, he yeah. seems to be moving into a commentator-presenter role. They're not going anywhere. No. And the powers that be don't want them to go anywhere either because uh, they were everywhere during the Australian Open. Yeah. Francisco doesn't win, but last week in Cordoba, Juan Manuel Serundolo beats 
Ramos Vignola's 6-love-2662 to go through qualifying in his first ATP event and win the whole damn thing. Like, that's crazy. In his home country, he beat some of the same players that Francisco beat the next week, Federico Coria and uh, Ramos Vignola's. He, uh, as you said, garnered a lot of social media stands just over that week. So I guess those th- that's three players for you to look out for the rest of the year. Clara Towson and the Serundolo brothers. Mm. Back to Mr. Pear. <laughs> In Pear's match against Francisco Serundolo, he had a, a serious problem with a call on the clay and he was screaming at the umpire. And eventually he spat upon the mark. Mm-hmm. Now, I was able to find a... a a replay or highlights where I could freeze frame it. It already looked into me <laughs> in real time, but I could freeze frame it and and see pretty clearly that the ball mark that we're being shown or that pair is trying to tell us is what's going on. That that's just not. That's just not it. <laughs> it just isn't. And regardless, it's clay. These things happen. He loses his shit. So spits. On the ball mark. Yeah, this is patient zero at the U.S. Open, remember. In the middle of a pandemic that's transmitted by droplets, the dude spits on the court. I don't know what kind of punishment that requires. I don't know what umpire is allowed to do in that situation. But if I were the ATP, I'd be thinking really hard about a suspension. Well, we'll see what what the repercussion Mm -hmm. of this is. And it's something we absolutely have to keep an eye out on because... We've talked about how they seem to only be interested in penalizing certain things. Right. But, as you know, this is they, they are very hesitant to penalize things that happen off-court. This happened on-court. And they have certain powers to levy large fines or suspensions for things that uh, impugn the integrity of the game, for example. Mm-hmm. That's the language they use. Well, they just came out this week with all these, these um, recommendations and rule changes and prize money and ranking changes to help players adjust and and thrive through this pandemic. Mm. So they're aware that a pandemic is going on <laughs> at the very least. Yeah. Now, Benoit reacted on social media. Uh, he and Fabio are kind of two peas in a pod. Well, I would call it, this the Fognini approach. This wasn't the end of it. Mm. Y'all can confirm with us, but I read in a couple of places that he spat twice. Oh, Nice. I don't know if that's true, but I've read that twice. But then also, toward the end of the third set, he just straight out tanked. To my mind, that's a finable offense as well. Well, he has tanked many, many times. Right, but this is... A, a lot of times, the tanking is indiscernible. It's, it's <laughs> right, subjective. Right. This mm-hmm. was completely plain as day tanking. To the point where, on the final point, he's down 5-1... He serves his first serve in the completely wrong box. And before the ball kid even gets to the position to collect the ball, he's already served the second serve again mm. in that same wrong box without completing his full service motion. Like, that that's just not on. Right. At that point, just stop the match. Get him out of here. But Pear uh, tweeted after the match, in the end, it's worth it to suck uh, because he displayed his career prize money and how rich he is from sucking. Mm-hmm. It also came with a kiss emoji and a middle finger emoji <laughs> and showing us his $8 million yes. and telling us to fuck off. That's not really the point. Like, it's not... I'm sure a lot of trolls on social media were saying, you suck. 
but that's actually not the point. Like your behavior is absolute shit. It's not that you suck. That's not the problem. We've seen for years that Pear has a following. I hope it's it's dwindled and diminished over the years, but a following that takes pleasure in his antics. Right. It's worth it to bring up because there is actually like a big hipster appeal to Benoit Pear that I personally have never seen. But there's definitely like a, a part of tennis fandom that sees him as the hipster doofus genius. I just see the beard and I can I can smell it. Watching outbursts like this in the middle of a pandemic and just my general thinking about tennis players over the last year, I've been wondering how many of these players are suffering with their mental health. Seriously. And are mm. there procedures or their resources in place to help them yeah that's all that's a whole other thing yeah i mean this is a weird segue again i'm not saying that this is what's going on with benwell mm. but this is just something that's been on my mind as well right and I, yeah. I can only imagine that having to quarantine be it hard or soft quarantine having to travel the uncertainty of knowing when you're going to be playing next over the last year the uncertainty if you're not somebody with a huge nest egg of career prize money not knowing how you're going to pay your bills if you can afford a coach if you can afford you have to cut back your team all these different things i imagine it's a very stressful time Mm -hmm. for all of us but let alone a tennis player who has to consider all these things and and spends a lot of time inside their own head to begin with right right so we've seen so many karen outbursts in real life and we've seen similar outbursts in the tennis world and you wonder if that's uh, somebody's selfish reaction to things that they cannot control, you know? I, I feel for the players who have to go through all this quarantining and bubbling and then lose in the first round. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people have to lose in the first round. That's how tennis is organized, right? Quickly going through the results from last week. In Singapore, Alexei Popperin beats uh, Bublik in three sets. That was the first career title for the Australian. In Montpellier... David Goffin beats Bautista Agut 5-7-6-4-6-2. Goffin, in the last stretch, has been kind of feast or famine, mm-hmm. making a couple semifinals, but also losing a lot of first-round matches, especially at Grand Slams. And this is his first title since 2017 and the fifth of his career. This was in the uh, Song of Monfils Open, the, the <laughs> Sud de France Open in Montpellier. <laughs> Joe Willie was was back as well yeah, at that tournament. Yeah. Losing in the first in the first round didn't look that great, to be honest. No, but, but you know, I have hope. My 35-year-old fave. And then, like we said, Juan Manuel Sarundolo winning in Cordoba. Shall we get to some odds and ends? The biggest odd and end is a, is a huge milestone that Novak Djokovic has tied Roger Federer for the most ever weeks at number one. Is it the biggest, or you just said that because it was... The first one I'd written I mean, it's a pretty, it's a big deal, right? (laughs) I'm not going to, you know, let my bias creep in here. It's a huge deal. Djokovic is, you know, he's very clear about what his goals are, uh, which I appreciate. He wants, he wants the records. He wants the record weeks at number one. He wants the record for Grand Slams. And so far, God, it, he makes it look so easy, right? It, It feels like these records have been coming pretty easily to him. I wonder... If now that he's reached this explicit goal, and he will come tomorrow, like he equaled it last week, 310 weeks, he'll surpass Federer tomorrow. Given that that's now happened, 
when he says that the next goal is the all-time slam record, does that mean that he will now tailor his his schedule to make it more slam friendly, to be in as optimal a condition to win those slams? Right. Will we see his schedule look different going forward now? We see that backfire for certain players, some players who kind of need the match play. Obviously, as players get older, they do tailor their schedule to the majors. Serena plays what? I don't know what a normal year is now, but she might play six to eight tournaments in a year in her late 30s uh, with varying results. Djokovic's body seems to be holding up quite well. He has some nagging injuries like this elbow thing, the abdominal tear, which everybody has, but there hasn't been like the catastrophic injuries that a lot of players have. We were at the point now where the big three, they've all dealt with varying surgeries. Yeah, yeah. Like they've, once you get to your mid-30s, unimaginable wear and tear in your body manifests. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat miraculous that all three of them are still playing, given what they've put their bodies through at such a high level on the tennis court. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic is going to stay number one for for a while, right? Even if he reduces his schedule, if he continues to win majors, it's going to be hard to supplant him at number one. Right. I mean, I don't think that's something he has to worry about at all, right. nor should right. folks be worrying about wherever he plays, unless it's Roland Garros. <laughs> he is the favorite, right? Mm-hmm. Even on some of these leading clay events, some of them he probably might be favorite to beat Rafa this year. Um, so he's gonna be he's gonna be securing points. He'll be the number one or two seed for years to come, I think. Speaking of rankings, are these confusing enough? So let me try to explain this. The ATP had a press release explaining changes to the rankings going forward. So the results from March to August fifth, twenty nineteen. For any events that weren't played in 2020, will be extended another 52 weeks, but at 50%. The reduction to 50% will occur at the original drop date for each event. So that's the original day that the points were supposed to come off. And the example that they gave was Madrid, mm-hmm. right? So Madrid happened in 2019. It did not happen in 2020. So when Madrid happens this year, if you play Madrid and you lost in the first round this year but you made the semifinals in 2019, you're going to want to keep the 50% of the 2019 (laughs) semifinal, and we'll just forget about your 2021 result. So the rankings will count the greater of the player's two scores at the event, one of them being reduced by 50%. For tournaments that were rescheduled in 2020, like Roland Garros, those will be included for an additional 52 weeks at 50%, And those will be compared against the 2021 version of that event. They'll have the option to keep their full 2021 points or 50% of their 2020 points, whichever is better. Okay. (laughs) So, for example, if Djokovic loses in the first round of the 2021 French Open, he will keep 50% of his finals points from French Open 2020. Yeah, because that'll that be will, better. He'll carry that with him until the French Open 2022 when those will drop off. <laughs> right. So right now, unless they extend it further, we won't get into a, like a regular ranking system until August 2022. That's when it's now scheduled to start back normally. So that could change, of course. But the ranking points 
from tournaments played because the tour resumed in Cincinnati last year, mm-hmm. right? So the ATP tour will start having regular drops in points that we're used to starting with Cincinnati this year. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of confusing, huh? Now, that's a lot of numbers, but what do the ranking changes mean for people who are trying to build or maintain their ranking? Mm-hmm. As we know, there are only a handful of players who make true breakouts at Grand Slams, right? That's where mm-hmm. that's where folks can get like a life-changing number of points. So to my mind, for the majority of the players who will benefit from this 50%, this added COVID safety net, mm. they're going to be players who are already established. Right. And Not brand new players who no. don't have 20, 20, uh, 2019 points. No. So you have you have all these players who are, are having good results from the resumption up until now, and their points are not weighted the same as they normally would be. And that's going to be the case for a while going forward. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an inherent unfairness built into this. It's absolutely the right approach to try and create some COVID exceptions to, mm-hmm. to help players. Mm-hmm. The prize money is a great thing, helping to... To, to up the money to spread the wealth more. They're going to be taking from the ATP bonus pool to buff up some of the tournaments throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult to build a new ranking system to try to accommodate a lot of different interests during COVID. Some people will play less out of uh, concern for their health or because they don't want to deal with all the quarantine. Mm-hmm. And how do you accommodate that? I mean, many tournaments in 2020 were canceled, of course. So it makes sense for those ranking points not to drop off because nobody had the opportunity to defend them. And the ranking system is based on typically 52 weeks. And the philosophy is that if you win a tournament and you defend it, you're kind of at even. But if you don't defend it, all these points are gone. Yeah, I think this is a case where a weighted ranking might be helpful, Mm. even temporarily, where if... One of the Serundolo brothers beat, say, for example, Francisco beat Diego Schwartzman today. He gets a ranking bonus because his his points that he wins this week won't go as far as they have before. Right. You know, like a, a quality point thing where if you mm-hmm. beat a top 10 player or whatever, you get a kind of a booster. Or even if you win a tournament, there is a certain bonus that kicks mm-hmm. in for maybe players ranked 75 and below. I don't know. Oh, okay. I just, I don't think this there's a perfect solution. I just wonder whether like with every decision made in tennis it's benefiting in a lopsided top heavy way right right now you mentioned the the prize money increase the atp player council and the board at the atp support this they're going to pull from the year-end bonus pool which typically uh supports the top 12 guys at the end of the year and they're going to increase prize money at the 250s and the 500s between Australia and Wimbledon. Because the prize money pools for those tournaments were already cut at 50%. And so they're going to go up to 80% for the 250s and 60% for the 500s. It's something, it's a gesture. The guys who are eligible for the bonus pool are already very rich. It's it's more than a gesture, I think. It's material. Yeah. Did you see in the, the, press, in the press release from the ATP that they made sure to mention... <laughs> Federer and Nadal by name. Yes. Oh, yes. It said, 
this was decided by the players who are eligible for the bonus pool, blah, 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 including top 10 players, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. Yes, who are on the players' council. Uh, they could have just left it at like the players' council mm-hmm. decided this. Oh, yeah. Because Rafa was already getting heat from some Mexican media for not going to the Mexican tournament. He claimed it was because of his back injury and he wanted time. They said it's because we couldn't uh, meet his appearance fee demand. We don't know what exactly went on there. We know the top players earn massive appearance fees, a million or more, for, for players like Rafa, Novak, and Roger. Yeah, I mean, when you promise a player and the player doesn't show up, you don't want that to be on you as the mm. tournament. Right. If the player is kind of nursing this nagging injury and the financial incentive is not there, they're not going to go. Some players will show up to your tournament, not in optimal condition to collect their check. <laughs> you know? But that's that's assuming that this report has any credibility. Right, right. My reading of it is Nadal is one of the players who was most unwilling to travel during the, the first exactly. parts of the, of the pandemic. The one who's been more attuned to the perils of the pandemic than most tennis players. And... If you're one of those people who do not believe that he was injured in Australia, go ahead and live your life. We are not those people. And so given that we know that the French Open is his, it's the apex of his season. Yeah. I don't see how it would make sense for him still injured, having just pulled out of Rotterdam, to fly all the way to Mexico while not at full strength to then potentially jeopardize his run at the French Open when he just had to go through a Grand Slam at 35 years old, in not his best condition. like right. It, it, right, so he's going to go from the Netherlands to Mexico to the Middle East and play Dubai and then go and play Miami based on, as you said, his behavior last year. That just doesn't really seem to hold water. Anyway, I, I turned both my eyes away from <laughs> all this chitter-chatter on Twitter yeah. last this week because it was just a lot of just hullabaloo over nothing to my mind Mm. and in the same vein we get into the whole wild card debate again oh miami announces are we doing this yep miami announces that kim clysters is getting a wild card volvo car open announces that kim clysters is getting a wild card this will be her 2021 season debut we hear that stefanos tsitsipas has secured a wild card for his brother ranked 7,322 into the main draw. In reality, draw. he's ranked like 967. Into the main draw. Uh, Petros and Stefanos have gotten a bag of wild cards for doubles tournaments. They have rarely won a match. Listen, we're not going to beat a dead horse here. Obviously, the wild card system by nature is unfair. Tournaments will give it to local players who don't have a lot of experience. They'll give it to the siblings or cousins or son-in-law's best friend's dog walker because they can. In in a lot of these tournaments, especially the ones run by IMG, it's treated like (laughs) corporate boxes. Oh, God. Giving giving out seats to whoever is available to go that night. If your tournament is run by an agency and you're not repped by that agency, you're not getting a wild card. No. Period. So, yeah, it's crazy unfair. I've always been of the opinion that somebody of the stature of a Kleister's, a Hall of Famer, you give um, them as many wild cards 
She's won it four times. You give them as many wild cards until they retire. Right. That's if, how I feel. If Arnold Palmer's 85-year-old ass wants to play the British Open, you let him do it. Well, they I understand the that golf is different. They, they finally but... change the rules and it's a cutoff at 65. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the point is like, it's a balance between these players still bringing value to the game, to the spectators. Do people still want to watch them? And is it also fair to other players if you're if one of your goals is to develop new talent of course and players from countries not represented by a huge national federation will, will never get these wild cards they'll never get the chance to develop in the same way that mm. a player from Europe or North America does and that's incredibly unfair there's there are these reciprocal agreements between the slams right like what the so USTA are, you know, and and the French federation these are first world countries trading wild cards between them however I don't think that criticizing the Petros wildcard is off base. It's fairly ridiculous, right? And the same thing goes for Mario Saka. I want to be fair here. You know, these players are well out of the ranking area Mm. that you would normally give a wildcard to. I think that nepotism is outside of the realm of unfairness that we accept. <laughs> right, because we've established that wild cards are unfair. Nepotism makes it like super duper unfair. But if you're Sitsipas and he's clearly very tight with his family, he has one brother who is trying to make it on the tour, another one coming up, and then apparently there's a younger sister, Elizabeth. He even talked about he doesn't know if she'll be ready enough to play mixed at the Olympics with him this year. So maybe in four years' time. Like this is a Sitsipas dynasty that they're trying to construct <laughs> right. here. And so if I'm Tsitsipas, I'm putting that in my rider. You know, I want my humidifiers, <laughs> I want my Dalmatians, I want my champagne, and I want my brother to get a wild card. Sure, I understand sure. that. He can do that, but we can criticize it too. It's part and parcel of your appearance fee, essentially. Mm. Right? It's tacked on to that. He's within his rights to ask. These tournaments want big stars to come to their tournaments. Who is regula- who's going to regulate that? That's what I want right. to know. Like, where is this regulation going to come from? Otherwise, we are just going to sit here, talk about it on our show. Y'all are going to argue about it in the Twitter streets. And it's going to go on and on and on and on. Because the decisions happen so far above us. And there's no uniform regulation in tennis. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is one of the pitfalls of that. Wild cards and appearance fees. Wild we cards. touched on the perennial controversies, right? In WTA, there was a time when appearance fees were illegal. Mm-hmm. So this was all done under the table. There was a time when Steffi Graf was investigated as part of her yeah. tax case <laughs> when she caught a case with the tax mm-hmm. man as to whether her father took appearance fees yeah. under the table. For essentially cash payments that were unclaimed on her taxes. Peter Graf was showing up to these events like Aretha Franklin with a bag <laughs> and collecting cash. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. Anyway, let's move on to... Thanasi Kokinakis. Earlier this week, his appearance on a sports podcast called Ordinarily Speaking, and it's, you know, in English would be spelt ordinarily, but it's O-R-D-I-N-E-R-O-L-I, mm-hmm. Ordinarily Speaking. Clever. Mm-hmm. And in this interview, he documents his bouts of depression while he tried to make his way back to the tour many times over the last six years due to injury. And that on occasions he would be totally fine and then 
something small would happen, inconsequential, and then he'll, he'd find himself sobbing and he didn't know why. Mm. And that he's in a much better space now. But he wanted to put this out there so that other people could be helped by his experience and him talking about it. Mm-hmm. That's a really important. I mean, it has resonance for the age we're living through now because a lot of people are dealing with situational depression and anxiety and don't really understand how to place it or, or how to understand it. A lot of times it is triggered by your your current state, you know, what's going on in your life. So during the pandemic, people are feeling this stuck at home, uh, out of work, all that, and it's distinct from clinical depression, right? Uh, but it's still something that needs to be understood and recognized as real and having real physical effects too so kudos to him for doing that Mm -hmm. it's a real asset to professional tennis players yeah we've seen so much recently Iga Shiontek you know making a social media star out of her therapist like you know this these conversations are really becoming so much more acceptable publicly it's really absurd that we should even have to make a statement like that yeah yeah Marcus Willis has retired from tennis. Yeah, Marcus Willis, everybody knows him from his 2016 run at Wimbledon. He was ranked number 772, and he won three qualifying matches to play Roger Federer in the first round. Federer beat him pretty handily, but it was such a huge story in Britain. And he's one of these guys who has been playing on like the, you know, the ITFs, the lower levels of the tour, and have been trying to eke out a living. And he leaves with a warning to the LTA and tennis in general that this is impossible. You know, you're going to lose so many young British players because they simply cannot afford to play the sport. There there are fewer tournaments for young British players to play. And obviously this has importance for players in all countries. He says that he'll be starting his coaching qualifications and that you can always check for him on his podcast called What You Talking About, Willis? (laughs) Um, sir, do you want to explain where what you're talking about, where this comes from? Yeah, it comes from the American sitcom Different Strokes. Mm -hmm. Gary Coleman, that was his famous catchphrase from the show. And Willis was, I think, his brother. Are you saying that, that that it's appropriation? I think it's, if it's not, it's very close. (laughs) Very close. I am glad you brought this up because I want to talk about the non-appropriation that happened on RuPaul's Drag Race this You're week. You're glad you, I brought uh, it up like you didn't have it already written below. Well, I wrote <laughs> as a it. Segue. I wrote it because you had you mentioned it. I never knew about his podcast. Oh, okay. But this week, a white queen from Utica, New York, which is about two and a half hours from where I grew up. Her name is also Utica, not just a clever name, you know. She was uh, doing an impersonation of Bob Ross who is the the painter guy who was on like public television who I had no yeah. idea it's who really that like an, it's an american thing like a, i think a 70s and 80s thing if you grew up then and at, at one point i thought it was um, bob fosse <laughs> no so bob ross was white and he had an afro like he had big curly hair and it was grown out into an afro utica was afraid to wear an afro because she thought it would be cultural appropriation all of the black queens on the show tried to explain to her that Bob was white. Mm. So it's not really a problem if you wear his hair. Instead, she wore a wig made out of squirrels. It was an interesting choice. Anyway. That, that's a bit of a diversion It there. is, but that's what we do. Carlos Bernardes, you may have remembered that 
at the Australian Open before it started, we saw him being wheeled out of an Australian hotel after suffering a heart attack. Mm -hmm. We now learn that he will work the ATP 500 Barcelona Open in April. So he seems to be recovering, if not already recovered, from that health emergency in Australia. Mirjana Lucic-Baroni, one of the few tennis players that we've done one-on-ones with on this show. (laughs) One of the few tennis players who remember Bill Clinton's election. Who were even around, born (laughs) for Bill Clinton's election. One of the few who played alongside Martina Hingis. Mm -hmm. Thanks to David Kane over at Tennis.com, we got this piece where we learn that Mirjana's absence from the tour wasn't due to the pandemic, wasn't due to injury, both reasonable presumptions, Mm -hmm. but due to her giving birth to a daughter. She's 39 years old, and she plans to try and come back one more time. (laughs) And if there's anybody you should not bet against to make a comeback in tennis, it's, Mm -hmm. it's MLB. Interesting in that article, too, her husband owns a restaurant in Florida, and she was talking about how part of her time during quarantine was spent making sure that the restaurant was up to code with COVID regulations. Mind you, in Florida, that won't take much doing. <laughs> but <laughs> but she seemed to be very concerned with the pandemic mm. and taking the necessary precautions. And that was something that tracked with what I know of her as a tennis fan and having sat down and spoken with her in the past. Mm-hmm. She's one of the tennis players that just have a full-grown adult head on their shoulders. Yeah. Now, speaking of speaking somebody of who opposite. does not have a full-grown adult head on their shoulders, it's, it's amazing how this, I, we promise you, it's not set up this way and we didn't intend to make this mm. segue so neat and tidy. Sarana Kirstea... <laughs> We'll end with some social media mess. She, this this week, liked all these tweets from Greg Abbott, who is the governor of Texas, a uh, famous resident of Texas, Serana Kirstea, you know, mm. um, about reopening Texas and going maskless. Clap, clap, clap. She loves it. What What is her deal? It takes energy to be so persistently and consistently wrong. On almost every topic. Like, she is in step with John Isner, who tweeted congratulations and thanks to the governor for doing the Mm. right thing. Kirstea is also coming off her fiancé going after Alexis Ohanian for (laughs) defending his wife. Because she is engaged to the son of Jan Tyriak. Can we talk about um, recently, this is my favorite on-court moment from her. She tried to get her coach a code violation because he wouldn't stop talking. And the umpire explained to her that you would get the code violation because (laughs) you are the player. (laughs) We don't hand out violations to random people in the stands. Uh, It is a lot. It is a lot of drama with her. It's not just drama. It's utter stupidity. (laughs) Like it's relentless, nonsensical, absurd non-thinking behavior. Mm -hmm. So next time you ask for a one-on-one for her, like you think she's going to say no? That never would have been a possibility (laughs) to begin with. What do we got to sit there and talk about? (laughs) The next press conference is going to be mad awkward, though. (laughs) 
That brings us to the end of this episode. We tried to keep it shorter and sweeter than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, next up is Dubai. Mm-hmm. Roger Federer is coming back. Yeah, he'll be playing on Wednesday against either Dan Evans or somebody else. Mm-hmm. He gets a bye in the first round because his ranking has been propped up by the the freeze. Yeah. He's released uh, bits and pieces here and there. He's the kind of celebrity who, I mean, one photo of him standing next to a tennis court, mm-hmm. uh, that will satisfy the stands for a long time. But also, he's coming back from major surgery, which any surgery at this stage of your career as a tennis player is major surgery. Mm. And he is positively giddy to be back. That kind of giddiness about playing tennis, it's infectious. I think it's one of the more endearing things about Roger Federer, even if you're not necessarily a fan. Yeah, he just loves, loves this job. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Elliot with two T's got voted off Drag Race this week. Yeah, you are the but only one who... I'm still here. You're the only one I'm still, still standing. Here. Yeah, you are, you are the only one. <laughs> Anyway, we are at the Body Surf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Spotify, Overcast, Apple, all those things. Uh, write us a review. Email us at thebodyserve at gmail.com. Which you will re- reply to some emails. I will. It takes me a while, but I, I read them. You'll it just takes me a while to reply. It's what I do for a living, right? Reply to emails. It feels yeah. like at my at my work life. So if Becky and HR can get an email right away, why can't other people? No, you're right. You're right. You all deserve it more. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. Becky. Thank you very much.